First on Radio 4, a new series of Fry's English Delight and a venerable 2,500-year-old language system once admired and widely taught whose name is now synonymous with meaningless and overblown argument. Rhetoric. Can it be rehabilitated? Friends, listeners, countrymen. Here's Stephen Fry. It may well be too late, of course, to rehabilitate rhetoric's original meaning. In early April, the word rhetoric got yet another pummeling as North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un ratcheted up the nuclear pressure. Here's a vexed-sounding Vanessa Feltz on her BBC London show talking to Simon Thompson from BBC News. By the uh, increasing rhetoric coming out of, of Pyongyang. I noticed that you use the word rhetoric. I mean, rhetoric is, is usually used to mean words which sound impressive but may have no substance. How do we know that the words uttered by North Korea and their leaders and representatives are simply rhetoric and don't have anything we really need to worry about? And perhaps it's now just classical scholars and language buffs wincing at how the meaning of the word appears to have performed a U-turn. Rhetoric is now synonymous with lack of substance. In January 2011, Gabrielle Giffords, an Arizona congresswoman, was doing her democratic job, exchanging views with the public at a Congress on Your Corner event outside a Tucson supermarket, when she was shot in the head by an assassin who killed six others. Okay. And here is Miss Giffords two years later. Thank you for inviting me. On a miraculous road to recovery, addressing the U.S. Senate from the heart about violent crime. This is an important conversation. Rhetoric? For our children, for our communities. Isocolon. Phrases of the same length, with the same kind of grammatical structure. There's some anaphora in there, she repeats. We would describe her as using particular devices. For Democrats and Republicans. These two pundits seem to be advancing an entirely Greek collection of terms for pulling apart Miss Gifford's seemingly simple speech. Speaking is difficult, but I need to say something important. Too many children are dying. Too many children. There's instant appeal to pathos. She's choosing children. You know, probably most of the gun crime victims in America are adults. Children is what gets your heartstrings. It will be hard. It is a rhetorical speech. Surely not. Yes, it is. But the time is now. Time is now. I know she's appealing to Kairos, this idea that you know, there is a moment to act, there's a moment for this speech to happen. You must act. Be bold, be courageous. Americans are counting on you. Thank you. It sounds as if it could be a call to arms, but of course it's the opposite of that. By labelling it rhetorical and then showing their analytical work in the margin, so to speak, aren't they devaluing the sincerity with which she spoke? The two commentators you heard there, both professional rhetoric watchers, are Jennifer Richards, Professor of Early Modern Literature and Culture at Newcastle University. I wonder why calling it rhetorical sounds so bad, actually. It usually means spin now, 21st century, doesn't it? Rhetoric should be something 
that we need to be suspicious of. We need to be aware of when people are trying to act on us through language. And the other commentator is Sam Leith, journalist and author of a book called You Talking to Me, Rhetoric from Aristotle to Obama. There is an idea, I think, is that it comes with a whole lot of negative connotations. We think of it as something that liars use to persuade us of something that's not really in our interests. I think uh, rhetoric is tended in some respects in that it tends to be the bollocks that politicians speak. And that's Colonel Tim Collins, whose military rhetoric will also be pulling apart. Rhetoric, remember, is a noble and ancient oratorical discipline, much admired and used by Shakespeare and venerated long after. Later, we'll hear it being taught by a former actor, now a uh, trainer in business communications. The task of people like me, who want to help people to communicate more effectively, is to find... I always think of it as finding a version of themselves that works best in a public arena. And rhetoric helps you to do that. At its best, rhetoric is the set of skills that allows people to perform themselves. Perform themselves to what end? Statistically, rhetoric is now most often linked to adjectives like inflammatory, populist, harsh and overheated. The data show that two verbs it commonly hangs about with are spew and spout. And, of course, we associate rhetoric with rhetorical questions. Sam Leith, let's have an example of some rhetorical questions. Why not? Well, why do we call them rhetorical questions anyway? And, and why is it that rhetorical questions are things... We always seem to use on people who, like babies and dogs, yes. who, who don't have an answer. You know, who's mummy's little cutie wooty then? <laughs> yes, and you, you don't have to explain to them that it's a rhetorical question. When you say, how do you do to somebody, that's a rhetorical question, which some people yeah. don't seem to get. So why rehabilitate rhetoric? It's always better to know how something works than not. And, you know, we're using rhetoric all the time. The fact of it doesn't need rehabilitation. What needs rehabilitation is our understanding of it. Not least because it can be argued that the exact same rhetorical recipes for public language that Aristotle examined and recorded are still very much in use today, not just by politicians, but everyone. By the way, apart from this next bit, uh, when we're going to let Sam loose on some vintage Boris Johnson post-Olympic triumphal rhetoric, we'll try hard to keep British politicians out of this. Good evening, ladies and I want you to know it was very, very hard just now to hand over that... Olympic flag. Exactly. Do you think I should have tried to keep it? A whole lot of things going on. He's asking the audience a question. Get someone aside. We had, we had hanged on. I, this, is, this is no moment, is it, for, for triumphalism. This is no moment for gloating or crowing. Anaphora, he's repeating the same thing again. This is no moment. This is no moment. And that's also occultatio, which is the thing where you say something when you're pretending not to say it. So it's, it's no moment to do this. It's no moment to do that. And let me say what it isn't a moment to do in quite some detail. I want to thank the armed services who, who pulled our chestnuts out of the fire. I think it would be not too... Uh, in terms of ethos, it's hugely effective because he's making them laugh. He's focusing on them. And you've got an automatic kind of ethos appeal going on because you're talking about national pride. I want to thank the police... You know, the country is the ultimate sort of ethos appeal, a sports event. But above all, to get to the point, I want to thank you. I want to thank the athletes. I want to thank the Boris is an extremely effective rhetorician, partly because, you know, his classical background, so he kind of knows, you know, the nuts and bolts of it anyway. But also, he is a great actor. Is that right? 
That's right. And if and if we excluded swimming, the ancient Greek term hippocrisis, which sounds like what happens if you know all of your hippopotami escape from the zoo into a crowded urban area, it's a term that means both acting, and it's the term used for delivery in rhetoric in the final canon of oratories. And Boris delivers brilliantly. I know, but I know all about losing, and I know that each one of you, each one of you, five hundred forty-six who haven't yet won medals, were absolutely indispensable. It looks like it's off the cuff, as if he's made no effort. But again, it's very, very patterned. He must be using his education, don't you think? Professor Jennifer Richards with a rhetorical question there. And yes, education and classics and ancient history all come into it. But promise, it's not all Latin and public schools showing off. We've got all these Latinate terms, and that can be rather scientific and very off-putting. But the one thing that I find so surprising about this is that... What worked 2,000 years ago still works now. So, where, when, how, to use a tricolonic form of question, does all this start? One way of thinking about it is that it starts in 5th century Sicily. There's no record of this, so this is just a story, this is just a myth. After the overthrow of a tyrant, the citizens needed to reclaim their land, confiscated land, and they had to go to law courts to do that, and they needed to persuade. And the story goes that one of these people, Corax, started to think about language systematically, what you need to do to be persuasive. So that's one of the starting points. But as I said, there's no record um, of that. There's no written text, so we don't have Corax's system of rhetoric. The reason why that story is important is that it tells us something about why rhetoric is so important. It's about um, people being able to speak for the first time and claim what's being taken away from them. Trouble is, according to another myth, Corax took a paying pupil who used the same rhetoric he learned from his master to talk his way out of paying Corax his tuition fees. From the very beginning, rhetoric's cleverness had a naughty side. And here's another superstar of rhetoric, the Roman orator Cicero, statesman and politician, with his story of how rhetoric might have started, again rising out of lawlessness. Jennifer Richards. And then the story goes, Cicero's story, one great man, and it is a man, um, appeared and used reason and eloquence to persuade people to, to come together and stop fighting. Actually, that story, that second story from Cicero, is problematic in some ways, because we know it, it's Cicero's story. It's about a great man. Cicero was a bit of a megalomaniac himself, a bit of a big head. So it's a story partly about himself and his power and the power of the rhetorician. And some people would find in that story the um, seeds of the undoing of rhetoric, the anxiety about the power of the orator. And that's the 2,000-plus-year-old argument, really. If rhetoric genuinely is a time-proven power tool of persuasion, is it, one, intrinsically good, two, intrinsically dangerous, three, neutral, but worth considering in a series devoted to English language? Lists of three. That's rhetoric at work. Tricolon. Which is rhetoric. Rhetoric is the dark art that we're talking about. This is Alan Barker, speechwriting trainer, among other things, teaching communication skills to business people. But it was almost certainly being used long before that. 
There's plenty of rhetoric. He even named his business Kairos Training. And this is the right moment in the programme, the Kairos, for us to look at rhetoric's three-card trick. Veni, Vidi, Vici, blood, sweat and tears, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and why it works so well. What is the magic of the tricolon? Why should the tricolon work where other rhetorical tropes and schemes fail to work? Is there some kind of uh, inherent magic in the number three? The thing about the number three is that it's dynamic, it's unstable. Two is balanced, four is balanced, five is too many. So you're left with either one or three. If you say three things, you have a setup, you have the follow through, and then you have what was it called in that film, The Prestige? The moment of revelation. concluded that this reference to the prog rock trio Emerson, Lake and Palmer was a cheap way of cheating some music into the programme. Maybe. For me, though, and perhaps for some of you with the appropriate vinyl collection, it's a way of drumming into the memory another rhetorical trio. Ethos, Logos and Pathos. And ELP is a mnemonic and a mnemonic is itself an ancient rhetorical aid, named after the Greek goddess of memory, Mnemosyne, the mother of the muses. To the pre-PowerPoint, pre-autocue, pre-pencil and paper orator, memory was a big part of rhetoric. So, for rhetoric geeks like Sam Leith, the letters ELP recall an ancient formula. Aristotle got this right before the birth of Christ and it has held ever since. There are three different persuasive appeals and these will mingle in any given situation, in any given piece of speech. I think of them as the three musketeers because they sound like that. Ethos, pathos and logos. There's no Aramis. But ethos, which kind of underpins everything, is this idea of appealing to your audience. You know, what's the speaker's credentials? What are his or her authority is he i mean it's basically it's a connection you make with an audience it's are you one of us are you speaking the same language does the audience trust you to know what you're talking about does it think that you're being honest does it think that your agenda is the same as the audience's agenda and the appeal to pathos to take them out of order is an appeal to any emotional response not just sadness to anger to bravery loyalty to laughter solidarity patriotism even and logos the word, the argument, the reason, the content. That's the toughest of the trio to crack rhetorically. It doesn't mean logic. It's not quite scientific. It's the persuasive meat in the ethos-pathos sandwich. Speechwriting trainer Alan Barker. I think what's quite interesting about the really ancient tradition is that it doesn't have a great deal to say about explanation. So it's all about persuasion. The third of our trio of speeches is, as you'll hear, ostensibly an appeal to Logos. It's explanatory. We are going into Iraq to liberate and not to conquer. 
It was made by Colonel Tim Collins to the 1st Battalion of the Royal Irish Regiment in Iraq in 2003, just before the Second War there, and is now famed as the Eve of Battle speech, performed here by Kenneth Branagh as Collins in the BBC production of Ten Days to War. We will not fly our flags in their country. Essentially, the audience was uh, young men, um, many of them from Ireland, um, who had never been to war. Now, there are some who are alive at this moment who will not be alive shortly. Those of them who do not wish to go on that journey, we will not send them. As for the others, I expect you to rock their world. Wipe them out, if that's what they choose. If you are ferocious in battle, Remember to be magnanimous in victory. Iraq is steeped in history. It is the site of the Garden of Eden, of the Great Flood. It is the birthplace of Abraham. You tread... You tread lightly there. The origin really was my driver, who's a lad from the north of Ireland, uh, from Limavady. And as we were driving back, he said, um, are we going to war, sir? And I said, we most certainly are. And he said, I don't want to be rude about this, and I want to emphasise the boys are keen to go, but we have no idea why this is happening. And suddenly I thought, actually, that's a good point. No one has actually told my men why this is happening. They did not plan to die this day. So allow them dignity and death. Bury them with due reverence and properly mark their graves. It remains my foremost intention to bring every single one of you out alive. But there may be those among us who will not see the end of this campaign. And we will... We will put them in their sleeping bags and we will send them back. And there will be no time for sorrow. We will grieve for them later felt a duty of responsibility, first of all, to, to explain to them why what was going to happen was going to happen, even though I hadn't an official version myself, so I was making it up as I went along. As we know famously, there was no plan. To take another human life, it is not to be done lightly. And uh, finally, the realisation that for many of them they would be taking other people's lives, and again, I wanted them to understand the context and the reason for that. And I know your Mars will be in the queue at the co-op next week. And they won't want you to let them down. The soldiers in the camp had been preparing. They'd been painting vehicles, maintaining vehicles. They'd been preparing their weapons, digging latrines, and all the, the, the minutiae of army life. Our business now is north. My message was, whatever you were doing before, whatever was happening before, put it away, we're going north, and that's the only thing that matters. With its intricate mix of appeal to ethos and pathos, its reverberations on Henry V, the speech could be a key text in our revival of rhetoric. What about that final five words, Sam Leith? Our business now is north. Now, that's sort of an ellipsis. You know, he's taken something out there that's sort of missing words. But it's enormously effective. It's rhetorically effective. It suddenly says, you know, you've got a direction of travel. It's very monolithic. It's just north. North is a synecdoche for everything that's implied. You know, it's catchy. You know, it is a soundbite. We know what a soundbite is, but synecdoche? 
It's the kind of figure of speech or trope that a well-educated Tudor schoolboy steeped in the speeches of Roman rhetoricians, season ticket to the Globe, would know all about Jennifer Richards. Any boys who went to school would have been trained to trope spot. We know that people took notebooks to the Globe to jot down parts of speech that they particularly enjoyed. There's no reason why they wouldn't carry that habit over from the grammar school. You start to be able to see how the patterns in language, and you've got some way of describing it, that's both useful and a bit nerdy as well. Trope spotting is not something I do very happily. It was never my way into rhetoric. But yes, I do think it's a little bit male. Let's indulge that a bit then. Uh, Sam, you've already confessed to being a bit of a, um, a rhetoric geek. So let's have a bit of trope spotting. Well, actually, I'm going to start by interrupting you in a geeky way and saying that what you're talking about isn't really tropes, but figures. Uh, figures ah. are, the, are the technical term tropes, which we now use to mean anything you know, vaguely metaphorical, actually are figures that affect only one word. So there's my, ah. there's my pedantry to start out with. I like that. So we're definitely going figure spotting, not trope spotting. I'll name a figure, and you see if you can give me an example or definition. I'll start with paranomasia. Well, paranomasia is any form of wordplay or pun, so um, that great... Uh, election slogan, welfare isn't working. If that had been a failed slogan, it, you might have said, welfare isn't working, isn't working, which would have been a double paranomasia. <laughs> Very good. Hypophora? Hypophora. Hypophora, I, think that's right. I suppose I it would be, it? It's when you ask a question and then you give the answer immediately afterwards. So the opposite of a rhetorical question. So you might say, you know, do I know what hypophora is? I do. Why do I know what hypophora is? because I looked it up in a book just before coming on this programme. <laughs> That's excellent. Dialysis. It's nothing to do with your kidneys. It's all to do with setting out two alternatives. So you'll say, you know, either this man is a knave or he's a fool. Either you know the answer to what dialysis is or you don't. And now you do. Antanaclasis? Well, that's where you repeat a word, but it takes on a different meaning at the second repetition. So alcoholics in recovery sometimes say, I was sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. Oh, splendid. It's lovely to know that there simply is a word for every figure, every turn we give to a word, every trope, every, every sort of movement, every balance, every rhythm, every flick, every... Pretty much over the thousands of years, everyone has been described. In a way, you're a bit like one of those sports commentators who's commentating on figure skating, and they keep saying, and there's a lovely triple pike there, and you don't know what, the, what it is that you've seen, but you know it's very graceful. Yes, and you, you can I mean, watch a speech and do the same thing. And there's the anaphyraxis. There's, there's a quick epistrophe, and he's finishing with a magnificent alxasis. You know, yes, and yeah. what a diminished clausula at the end. Yes. Superb. Yes. Gives the audience pleasure, even if they have no idea what you're talking about. Yes. So we hope. Nowadays, of course, the study and practice of rhetoric is far from a male preserve. But does the system of rhetoric, with its myriad tropes, its five canons, its three appeals, does it have a place in modern practice? Speechwriting trainer Alan Barker. I was doing some work last week with an executive in an advertising agency who was Spanish and whose English was good but not superb. We found that the more we were able to put well-turned sentences into the text, the easier she found it to remember. I didn't talk about figures of speech or tropes or schemes particularly. As we were able to kind of plant these figures into her sentences so that each sentence had a memorable shape, we were able to give her speaking a level of distinction that it didn't have before. And that's what the tropes and schemes do. 
So might it be that we don't need rhetoric to be formally rehabilitated for it to work its magic? That lady was being taught it without knowing what it was. Still worked. To Cambridge University now, not to some crusty classics class, but to the Chamber of the Cambridge Union Society, a venerable body devoted entirely to debate. Law student Talil Latif is Cambridge Union's debating officer. This is the Cambridge Union Society debating chamber. You walk in and you immediately think of Westminster, two rows of benches and two sides to a particular debate. The seats are leather and they extend back to the edges of the walls. It's Thursday afternoon and the chamber sits empty. It's as if the chamber knows what's going to occur later this evening. It will be filled with 800 excited students sitting in the rows and benches waiting for the main debate um, this evening. The motion is about celebrity culture. It will feature some notable celebrities. Good evening, everyone. Tonight's debate, as I'm sure you know, is on the motion This House Believes Celebrity is the New Opiate of the Masses. Probably best not dwell on this motion about celebrity and opiates. No time to enjoy the rhetoric of Katie Price and Lembidopic. But as well as attention-seeking debates, the Cambridge Union runs well-attended debating workshops run by students for students. I'm Maria English, and I'm reading politics. I'm Clara Spera, and I'm an MPhil student in European literature and culture. We'll be running a workshop with a group of students on how to present persuasive arguments. So in a way, we are teachers of a rhetoric. But also how to listen to what other people are saying, how to not only build up your own arguments, but how to challenge others. The straw man. What it basically means is that your opposition provides an interpretation of what you said that's quite biased and not actually what you said, basically. And then they attack the straw man that they've set up. What should you do about it? Point out the straw man. People think of debating within the Cambridge Union Society as a very exclusive activity. It isn't. I am a comprehensive school, educated individual. Mr McGowan was my debating coach at Mearns Castle High School. Incredibly fantastic man, put in hours and hours of his time discussing debating, explaining how arguments work. Um, if, if it wasn't for debating, I would never have been at Cambridge University. So Sam Leith, straw man, is that identified as rhetorical speaking? Aristotle talks about something like it. I mean, he talks about false enthymemes, which is essentially what a straw man is. But unfortunately, there's no Latin or Greek term I've come across. I mean, you know, straw man as Maximus. (laughs) (laughs) Which, does that mean it isn't rhetorical? Do all rhetorical things have to have their origin in Greek definitions? No, not at all, not at all. I mean, I think it participates everywhere in rhetoric. So why rehabilitate rhetoric? Why wrest its power away from the demagoguery of the Kim Jong-uns of the world? Thank you for inviting me. And restore it to the Gabrielle Giffords of the world. This is an important conversation. Rhetoric is the set of skills that we use to influence each other without using force. Because if we didn't have rhetoric, we would be reduced to picking up weapons. Violence is a big problem. A 20th century historian of rhetoric called Kenneth Burke had a really useful way of describing rhetoric. We might think of rhetoric as just the art of persuasion. It's a technical subject, it's a system of language that you need to learn to be persuasive. Kenneth Burke called rhetoric equipment for living. 
I really like that phrase. Equipment reminds us that rhetoric is a formal subject. It's a technical subject. It's a system. It's got its own language. It's got its own way of seeing. But calling it equipment for living reminds us that it's something that's every day. It's ordinary. It's in our lives. You can hear more rhetorical conversation with Stephen Fry and Sam Leith on the Radio 4 website. Fry's English Delight was presented by Stephen Fry and produced by Nick Baker.